Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone. So wonderful to see your smiling faces. Uh, so one order of business before we jump in here, uh, just because it's been a little while since we've done this, uh, but we have out on the table right outside the sanctuary doors here, we have uh, these volunteer sign-up cards. Some of you may be familiar with them. Uh, if you came to uh, any of our last two uh, volunteer nights, we have had those available for you to fill out. Um, but out there, there's this volunteer sign-up thing as along with a little piece of paper that you can take home that tells you the requirements for volunteers here at the Gospel House. We've got some new people who have been coming recently, uh, so we figured now would be a good time to get that out in front of people to get you plugged in. We want to be, so the, the Bible, biblically speaking, the church is the body of Christ, right? We are all aware of this. That's the analogy that we are given in Scripture. And for us to be a properly functioning body, every part has to do its job, right? That's what body parts do. So uh, we at the Gospel House, we want everyone to be involved here. We want everybody to feel like they have a place, to have a role, to have a purpose. And so we want as many people as possible to be participating in what we're doing here. So there's a bunch of different areas. You can ask questions after service if you've got questions about getting involved. But fill out one of those forms that you're interested. Put it in the little offering basket thing that we have out on that table. Uh, and we will be in contact with you on how to get involved. That's the announcement. Now on to the message. And this one's going to hit close to home for some of us, probably for all of us. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Has anyone ever been there before? Completely and utterly forgotten alone, forsaken. You feel like you have done everything the right way, and yet you have been overlooked every time. Anyone? It's a lonely road sometimes, isn't it? Doing the right thing. You do everything right, and it seems like everyone else gets the attention. Everyone else gets the breaks. Everyone else gets to stand in the limelight, and you are stuck, alone, unrecognized, and unseen. And if we're not careful, this lonely road can have a major impact on how we walk with God. We talked about this a little bit last week. It's that bad theology, right? Bad things always happen to bad people, and good things always happen to good people. So if bad stuff is happening to you, then you must be doing bad things. And that's false theology. The Bible does not teach that, and we've got to get away with that. But along with that, we can also form equally bad theology when we transcribe the way that we are treated to the way that God feels about us. So when others forget us, it can be very easy to fall into the trap 
well, God's forgotten me too, right? Especially when, this is going to hit close to home for some of us, especially when that hurt comes from within the church. Because we see spirit-filled men and women walking about, and they forget us, and it's very easy to say, well, if they're spirit-filled, then the Holy Spirit's forgotten about me too. And here I am, alone. And some of the deepest hurts, and even if you're not walking through it personally, or you haven't walked through church hurt personally, I promise you someone within your sphere of influence has. And most likely, you know exactly who that someone is. So this message is for them. This message is for you. And how do we keep from doing that? How do we keep from equating how churched people, even unchurched people, how they feel and treat us, and keep from letting that impact our relationship with God? Because Joseph does, right? Joseph continually, over and over again, is just thrown into the dump, right? He's betrayed, he's forgotten, he's passed off. And yet again and again, Joseph never lets how others treat him impact his relationship with God. It's a very easy trap to fall into, isn't it? Has anyone ever been there? Will you admit? I've been there. It's very easy to fall into that when I am unseen by everyone else, well, that must mean God doesn't see me either. And that's simply not the case. We have to remember that even when we are forgotten, when we are in Christ, we are sovereignly forgotten. We keep getting these sandpaper sermon titles in this series, don't we? Right? It just rubs you the wrong way. It's like even with that, you're sovereignly forgotten. Christian, you are sovereignly forgotten. Thanks. That's miserable comfort, right? That doesn't make me feel good. Come on, pastor. But it will make you feel good. You just got to wait till point three before we make you feel good. Points one and two tear you down to where you feel like nothing. Point three builds you up to the skies and makes you like Jesus. That's how we do it here at the Gospel House. Last week, we had the gall to say that God is sovereign. God is completely in control. This is all part of God's plan even in the middle of injustice, the worst injustice in the history of mankind, Jesus Christ, the only perfect human to ever walk this earth, was accused, condemned, guilty, and hung on a cross for crimes that he never committed. The greatest injustice this world has ever seen, and God was in the middle of it all. If God is in the middle of that injustice, he can be in the middle of any injustice. And in fact, God's sovereignty says that he is in the middle of all injustice and that one day he will put it right. And now today, we look at this. Joseph, completely and utterly alone, rotting in a prison, taking care of these two men, and then when these two men get out and make it, completely forgotten, left to rot. And he didn't even do anything wrong, right? What gives? And yet, God is sovereign. So to see that sovereignty even more clearly, here's our three points. When we feel forgotten, when you feel like God has forgotten you, 
when you are forgotten by those around you, by those closest to you, you need to trust God's timing. We need to use God's timing, or more appropriately, be used in God's timing. And we need to remember that we are never actually truly forgotten. So first, let's get in. Trust God's timing. It is so tempting. We've hit on this throughout this sermon series. But it is so tempting when things don't go our way for us to try to manufacture the miracle, isn't it? It is so tempting when we feel like God is delaying on his promises, especially when you feel like God has given you a promise, right? When God has told you, hey, this is going to happen, and you're like, okay, well, let's make it happen then, right? And it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen. And so, well, the logical step is, all right, well, I'm going to go make it happen. But that's not waiting on God's timing. If God hasn't told you to do it, it's not time yet. We all straight on that, right? There are multiple times in the Bible when different Bible characters take God's sovereign will into their own hands and they try to manufacture their own miracle. And every time it ends poorly, which leads us to the lesson, if God has promised it, God will be the one to bring it about. You don't have to manufacture it. You just have to obey. Looking at Joseph's story, I don't think anyone would argue that Joseph's situation consistently works out in a less than ideal manner, right? Every step along the way in this story of Joseph, there is just something that knocks him down. And this story that we read today is just the next in the line of things that just don't work out for Joseph. If Joseph were here today, we would tell him not to go to the casino because his luck is in the dumps, right? Thankfully, we're Christians, we don't believe in luck, and neither did Joseph. But Mark read about it, right? Everything that Joseph goes through, this chief cupbearer is just next in line. Even when Joseph says, right after he interprets this dream for the chief cupbearer, Joseph says, keep me in mind when it goes well with you. Because Joseph knows it's going to go well with him, right? God's told him that it's going to go well with him. Keep me in mind when it goes well with you. And do a kindness to me by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of here. And then what happens? The rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Now, the part of the story that you didn't hear, we cut it off for time's sake, and because I didn't want Mark to have to stand up here and read for five hours. But Joseph also interprets the dream for this chief baker. That dream doesn't go quite so well. He tells the chief baker that, hey, you're going to get out in three days too, but Pharaoh's actually going to hang you. So 
Imagine that. Wouldn't that be great being that guy? The one guy comes to him and is like, hey, yeah, you're going to get out two, three days. You're going to be restored exactly where you came from. And then the baker's like, all right, my turn. What am I going to get? Oh, yeah, you're going to die. Hmm. But that's how interpretations go, right? You can't tell them something that's not going to happen. So at the end of it, the chief cupbearer forgets Joseph, forgets everything that Joseph did for him. And if you're Joseph, you've got to be thinking, are you kidding me? Is there anyone else on this earth who could possibly forget me? Who could possibly just hose me over again and again and again? Because this just keeps happening. Now, I would love to think, I think most of us would love to think, you always put yourself in the position of these Bible characters, right? I would love to think that if I were in this position of Joseph, that yes, I would be super Christian and be like, I'm not wavering, Lord. I trust you completely, and I never struggle with doubt. <laughs> and everybody who's actually living in the real world says, <laughs> oops, right? Because when you get hit over and over and over again, it's hard to get back up sometimes. But yet Joseph keeps going. Even though it's hard, he keeps going. And here's the thing. If we're going to trust God, we have got to trust God. All of God, right? Every part of his plan. If we're going to trust that he has a good and perfect plan, if we're going to trust that he is sovereign, that he is in complete control. And here's the thing, y'all. I'm going to be pretty blunt here. God is either in complete control or he is not in control at all. Christian, stop straddling that fence. Because if God isn't in complete control, is he really worth serving? But you get in this, we, you know, we've talked about chasing these, these strings, right, that the Bible gives us. And, and this string of God being completely sovereign and in complete control, having complete authority over the world, if he doesn't have control over certain things, this entire book starts to unravel really quick. It's like all those people who say, well, you know, Jesus was just a good teacher, but his teachings on sexual morality, that's, that was stuff that the, that the writers, they put in there. Jesus didn't actually teach that. Hey, guys, if we're going to start questioning one teaching in here, then throw the whole thing away. Because as soon as this ball of string starts to unravel, you, you guys ever had a sweater, you know, like an old sweater, and, you, and there's that little string that's hanging down? and you start to pull on it, and your mom always tells you, don't pull on it, get out scissors and cut this, because you don't pull on it. Why don't you pull on the string? Because when you start to pull on it, the whole thing starts to unravel, right? And then you don't have a sweater left. So you have got to make sure we either believe in all of God's sovereignty, or we believe in none of God's sovereignty. And if we believe in all, all of God's sovereignty, that he is completely in control, then he is also completely in control of the timeline of these events, right? His timing is in 
complete control. We've actually talked about this verse. It's been a long time. But Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, people run to this verse a lot. So it's a really good promise of the Lord. But it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are, my ways, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I've heard a lot of people cling to this promise, right? And I don't know if I view it as much as a promise as I do a warning. Because we can run to it as a promise a lot when things aren't going our way. But then when we want control, because what does this say? What's Isaiah 55 say? Isaiah 55 says, this is what promise likes to say to me a lot when I tell her that she can't do something. You're not the boss. <laughs> and you know what, Kai, I mean, you guys, you guys have all been kids, right? What answer do you get from your father when you look at your father and say, you're not the boss of me? It's never a good answer, is it? Right? But that's what Isaiah 55 is saying. Isaiah 55 is, yes, it's a promise of scripture, but be careful because you run to this promise like a little child and try to tell God, you're not the boss of me. Isaiah 55 says otherwise. Isaiah 55 is God's response to you're not the boss of me. Isaiah 55 says, my ways are higher than your ways, Jeremy. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, Jeremy. So get in line. Follow me. I love you. I have a plan and a purpose. And I am working it together. And you don't understand it. Guys, I, I've heard Tim Keller say this once, and it's one of those simple truths that blows your mind. If I have a God that I can completely understand, that I can, can completely tell where he's going every step of the way, that I can grasp, that I, he never does anything that I, makes me uncomfortable or blows my mind or takes me off guard, if that's my God, that's a pathetic God. Isn't it? I, I mean, like, like I, I consider myself a fairly intelligent human being, but I would really hope that the God I serve is significantly more intelligent than me. Anyone else? Right? <laughs> this is the God of the universe we're talking about here. If I, if my thoughts can grasp him, then I would argue that's not a God worth serving. So it should be expected that his ways are higher than my ways, that his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And because of that, I should step aside. I should acknowledge I am not in control. This lie of human secularism that this is my life, that I control my life, false. The gospel says false. This is not your life. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. And God's ways who are higher than, than mine... I say, praise God that this is not my life and that I am not my own. That I can lay my life into the hands of a sovereign God who has a plan and a purpose and who will direct my steps into that perfect plan and purpose. But God does it on his timeline. I'm going to merge together two teaching points here. This can be dangerous theologically. Lots of times. Have you ever seen anybody do that? We take one Bible verse from over here and we smash it together with this Bible verse over here and we say, look, Scripture says what I want it to say, right? That's what I'm doing. Warning. I'm doing that. 
I think you'll all find that it's consistent with the rest of Scripture, though. Because in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, God says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. When we mash this together with God's thoughts are not my thoughts and his ways are higher than my ways, God's timing is also higher than Jeremy's timing. The timeline with which God is working out the circumstances in my life are better than the timeline that I could manufacture on my own. Right? We have to trust that God has a plan and that even the timing of that plan is purposeful. There are seasons of waiting. You know, have any of you ever seen, there's, there's like a meme on Instagram, Facebook, whatever, but it, it says something to the effect of, you know, if somebody told me I only have a minute to live, I'm going to do a plank because that's the way to make a minute last longer than anything else, right? Because nobody likes doing those planks. Like 30 seconds feels like an eternity, right? But sometimes when you're waiting on the Lord, that's what it feels like. It feels like you're planking for, you know, three minutes. But that's what it feels like. It feels like, God, what are you doing? But we just sang about it, right? In Waymaker, even when we can't see it, he's working. Even when it feels like I'm not doing anything, like there's, the wheels are spinning, you know, it's like the cartoon characters when they try to run real fast and their legs just, right? That's how it feels sometimes. God, what are you doing? I am running in quicksand here and I'm not getting anywhere. God is moving. God is working. It's the gospel according to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. The waiting is the hardest part sometimes, isn't it? Nobody likes to wait. It's hard. We would rather, especially, you know, the American church, we want to be doers and doing and all that stuff. And it's good to do, but when God calls us to wait, we have to trust his timeline, that there's a plan and a purpose for it. With that being said, there is something that we have to come against when it comes to waiting. When God calls us to wait, we must use it. Point two, we have to use the time we've been given, even when we are waiting. The danger that we get into, especially when we are waiting in what feels like a pit. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You're waiting in a prison for a crime that you didn't commit. If nobody else wants to admit it, I will admit it. Do you know how I'm waiting in that prison when everyone has forgotten me? God, this is so unfair. Everybody's forgotten me, and I've done all the right things, and nobody cares about me. Right? Anyone? I'm not the only one, right? We complain. We put on our little rain cloud comes over us. You know, Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Oh, everyone's forgotten me. 
I'll just go over to the corner of this jail and mind my own business, right? We're really good at it, aren't we? And if we're not careful, that's all we do with the time that God has given us to wait. We sit there like Eeyores, and we pout and grump and whatever else all day long. But that's not what Joseph does. And this, this gets overlooked in this story. But that is not what Joseph does. When we look at Joseph, especially our current, you know, self-centric society, when we look at Joseph's story, everybody in their right minds would say, Joseph has every right to be mad. Joseph has every right to go sit in the corner and pout for a little bit. Have some me time, Joseph. Yeah. But that's not what he does tells us, the word of God tells us, the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of the chief cupbearer and chief baker, and they were in confinement for some time. So this is Joseph's job, right? He gets put in prison, he gets promoted in prison, he's in charge of all of these prisoners, so it's part of his job is to oversee these prisoners. But it's more than that, because it goes on to tell us these two men have these dreams, and these dreams significantly impact them. So what's Joseph do? He says, get back to work, you jerks. Nope. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, we have had a dream and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. After both of these men had these dreams... They are clearly shaken. So these are more than just, you know, had some goofy pizza last night and I'm having a dream. Like there was something significant that these men felt in these dreams. But Joseph noticed. Joseph wasn't so wrapped up in himself that he didn't bother to look at the people around him and to care about their feelings and to care about their attitudes. Joseph noticed, clearly this isn't the kind of leadership pipeline where everybody is there to serve Joseph, right? Joseph cared. He isn't so immersed in his own problems that he can't see everyone else's. Now, maybe you've heard this one before. The most basic definition of ministry Ministry responds to need. It's the simplest definition of ministry. Excuse me. Ministry responds to need. Here's the problem. Ministry cannot respond to need if ministry does not take the time to see needs. Come on, somebody. Right? Ministry cannot take time to see needs if ministry doesn't care enough to see needs. And ministry will never care enough to see needs if you are so wrapped up in your own problems that you can't acknowledge that other people around you have problems as well. Right? This is a big one right now. Because we are about to enter the Christmas season. 
wish my wife was in here right now because I would tell on her. I don't like Christmas. I don't. And it's not that I don't like Christmas because I love that Jesus was born. I really love that part of Christmas. Everything else, throw it out. I couldn't care less. That's the part of Christmas I hate. But ladies and gentlemen, and, and Christian, we are just as bad. Church, you're the worst of all of them. <laughs> because around Christmas time, what's every church in, in America doing? Putting on these huge productions. and like I was in it for a long time. And guys, the stress level during the Christmas season is through the roof in churches. Because everything is, is big and, oh, we got to put on these laser light shows and like all this fancy stuff and Christmas and programs and all this stuff. And we get so wrapped up in the season and the shopping lists and the presents and the toys for kids and the Christmas gatherings and all this stuff. We're like zombies. You talk about not being able to respond to needs because you can't see needs because you don't care about needs. Christmas brings that to the forefront because we are so wrapped up in our own doings during the holiday season that a season that is supposed to be about how God gave us the most precious gift that we could never deserve becomes all about us. And we lose sight of everything in the middle of our own self-centered culture of Christmas, we lose sight of everyone around us. And guess what happens when needs are not being responded to? Ministry isn't happening. If ministry is responding to need, and needs are not being met, then ministry is not happening, y'all. It's just Christian entertainment. It's just you for the sake of you. We cannot let that happen. The other danger that we get into is like, like we said, not just Christmas, but is when the road gets really hard, right? When our own situation is really bad. When we think our problems are so much worse than everyone else's that for some reason, since my problems trump this person's problems, I shouldn't have to respond to those needs. That's not in here. You know that, right? Because the Savior that we all claim to serve, we are all disciples of Jesus, right? On the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, what did he do? He said, hey, disciples, I'm going to need you guys to leave me alone for a couple hours because I'm about to go face the hardest thing anybody in the history of the human race has ever done, and I need some me time. He didn't do that, did he? He washed his disciples' feet. He took communion with his disciples. He taught his disciples about the coming Holy Spirit all the way up until the point that he was betrayed in the garden. Don't get so wrapped up in your circumstances that you fail to see the needs around you and respond to those needs. Christian, if you are not working while you're waiting, you are not waiting correctly. You may be waiting on the Lord to fulfill a promise in your life, but that never means that we aren't working. 
that never means that we aren't constantly observing the needs of those around us, that we aren't constantly watching how the Lord is working in the lives of those around us and responding while we're waiting. And God will move. And this is a whole lot easier to do when we remember that we are never truly forgotten. I am going to burst y'all's bubbles. This world will forget you. Your children, parents, if they haven't already, will forget you. Wives, your husband is going to forget your birthday and anniversary and every other significant date that is on the calendar. Husbands, your wives might do it too. I don't know. Maybe they're forgetful. It's not always the husband's fault. Most of the time it is. But y'all, human beings are flawed. We know this, right? They will let you down. Those who are closest to you will let you down. But there is one person who will never let you down. Like we've said, Joseph's got it going on. Everyone has forgotten him. And the chief cupbearer just adds his name to the list of people who have forgotten Joseph. But as we have said over and over again in this sermon series, we are continually reminded in the scripture, in the story of Joseph, that God was with Joseph. Which makes me believe that Joseph did not doubt that God was with him. We have an advantage that Joseph did not have. We have the gospel. We know the gospel. We also have the book of Isaiah. Joseph didn't have the book of Isaiah. That was in God's sovereign timing. That was a couple hundred years off yet. So he didn't have that. But since we have the book of Isaiah, we can turn to this incredible passage of Scripture. God himself says to you, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will never forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Even if your own mother has forgotten you, God will not forget you. And how do you know that? Because he has written you on the palms of his hands. That'll preach, y'all. As I was preparing this sermon this week, the Holy Spirit hit me with this, with, with that passage of Scripture. And I started chasing some of those rabbit trails, right? The Spirit led me to the story that we get in the book of John. And it's enough to make a grown man weep. I will not confirm or deny whether that is what happened while I was preparing, but it is enough. But listen to this. In the book of John, we get this account about a man named Doubting Thomas. Wouldn't you love to have that as your nickname? the world to remember you. Doubting Jeremy, y'all. But I think so often when we read this story, we focus on the doubting of Thomas that we miss something so much greater 
and it goes hand in hand with this passage from Isaiah. And it hit me for the first time. Maybe you guys, this isn't new to you. Maybe you've sat on this forever. But it hit me for the first time on Thursday. Jesus Christ could have been resurrected in a perfect body. He was God. He could do whatever he wanted, right? He could have been resurrected, shown up in this body, completely healed, completely whole. No no scars, no nothing but completely perfect in every way. Yet, he chose to keep those holes in his hands where the nails were driven into him, those holes in his feet that held him to that cross. He chose to keep that hole in his side where that spear pierced him. And why? To prove that he will never forget you. To prove that he will never forget me. When Isaiah 49 says that he has inscribed you on the palm of his hands, y'all, for eternity, we will look on a Savior who doesn't have a perfect body, but who still bears my name on the holes in his hands. That's your Savior. How can I know that my God will never forget me? Because for the rest of eternity, I will look at my name inscribed on his hand. Joseph knew that he served a God who would never forget him. And because of that, he could trust in God's timing. He could trust that God would never forsake him, and he could use that time to respond to the needs of those around him. Everyone in this world will forget you. But the God of the universe, with his nail-scarred hands, showed how far he will go to never forget you. What a Savior. What a God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you are pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you. And remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.